The sun was warm and bright in the sky as the wagon slowly rolled down the road to Andover. It was a community about 15 miles northwest of Salem Town, then one of the earliest settlements to get its own church and autonomy from Salem. But on this particular July morning, someone in Andover needed Salem's help. Not that Salem didn't need help as well. The official Oyer and Terminer trials had been rolling along, but it was far from smooth. After the first session, one of the nine magistrates resigned his position on the trial. After the second trial, one that convicted five more witches and scheduled them for execution on July 19th, the Attorney General himself, Sir Thomas Newton, also resigned his post. But despite those setbacks, things weren't slowing down. So when Joseph Ballard sent a message to Salem asking for help, they were happy to assist. Joseph's wife, Elizabeth, had been sick for a while, and no one seemed to be able to help her. And as the weeks went by, she was looking worse and worse off. Most of the people around her, her husband included, expected her to pass away sometime very soon. But they also began to wonder if there might be darker reasons for her illness. Witchcraft Knowing what the people of Salem had been dealing with, and the sorts of experts that had come out of the woodwork, Joseph Ballard decided to take a chance. He sent word to the neighboring town that he suspected his wife had been bewitched, and asked if they might be able to send someone to help find the person or people responsible. So the wagon heading to Andover on that bright July morning held someone special. Two people, actually. Two young women, who had become known and trusted as witchfinders, and their task was simple. Go to Andover and find the witches who were killing Elizabeth Ballard. Now, I need to pause and make something clear. We don't know who these two young women were. We have guesses, but those guesses vary from historian to historian. All of them pull from the same pool of accusers that sat at the center of the Salem trials, but the two names will differ depending on who you read. The best hints we have are the records of other witch-finding events, and most of those were carried out by Mercy Lewis and Elizabeth Hubbard. So that's who we're going to go with. But I think it also illuminates just how easy it is to forget. Now, their activity in Andover certainly wouldn't be the first. Martha Carrier, an abrasive and stubborn mother of five in her mid-30s, had been arrested nearly two months before back at the end of May and she still sat in a Salem jail. And her family connections had already landed her brother-in-law, Roger Toothaker, in jail, where he died at the end of June. But this witch-finding expedition was something new and different, something deadly, because it wasn't going to be a one-off that would happen and then be forgotten. No, if the Salem events were like a giant cistern holding millions of gallons of water, This little trip to Andover was a breach. A hole was being punctured in the side of the cistern, and a leak had sprung. And Andover was about to be swept away in the flood. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey.
The Ballards were an old family. The city of Andover is listed as first settled in 1642, 50 years before the events in Salem. But the Ballards arrived a year before that. They were part of that first wave of risk-takers who packed up and planted their lives farther inland from the safety of the Atlantic. As far as I can tell, the original Ballard family had three sons, John, William, and Joseph. Remember, in those days there weren't a lot of people living in the area, so apparently the ratio of men to women was slightly off. Andover Constable Joseph Ballard managed to find a wife, Elizabeth, the woman who was sick and dying, but his brothers weren't so lucky. It wasn't until around 1680 that all of that changed. That's when Samuel Wardwell moved to town. He was roughly the same age as the Ballard boys, and his household included not only his wife and children, but his wife's sister, Rebecca. Soon enough, Rebecca married John Ballard, and the family had grown a little larger. But in the summer of 1692, Joseph's wife Elizabeth took sick, and no one knew what was causing it. Medical science was barely more than folklore and herbs at the time, especially miles from a trained physician. So it was common for minds to wander toward unusual suspicions, and one of those ideas apparently popped into Samuel Wardwell's head. He claimed to have heard through the grapevine that Joseph suspected Samuel of bewitching his wife. He was a bit embarrassed by the idea, though, so rather than confront Joseph directly, he approached John Ballard instead. Had Joseph ever voiced a suspicion that Samuel was a witch, he asked him. John Ballard shook his head, answering with an honest denial. But John told Joseph about the conversation, and that put a bug in Joseph's head. Why would Samuel ask such a question? Why would he believe in such nonsense? Why? But then the obvious answer struck him right between the eyes. Samuel was asking because he was trying to see if anyone suspected him of something he knew he was doing. Thanks to Samuel's own initiation, Joseph now believed the man was a witch. So he sent one of his employees to Salem to bring back a witch finder. It's ironic, I know. The man with crazy ideas decided to be as logical as possible, and that logic included employing the services of young women who claimed to be able to track down witches. It was almost comical in its absurdity, but to Joseph Ballard, it made perfect sense. Days before Rebecca Nurse and the other four women convicted in the second trial would hang, Mercy Lewis and Elizabeth Hubbard arrived in Andover and got to work. But when they did, they discovered that Samuel Wardwell wasn't the only suspicious person. There was also Timothy Swan. Swan moved to the area from the neighboring town of Haverhill years before. In 1685, though, Swan was accused of attacking and raping his neighbor's daughter, Elizabeth. The proof, as presented in court, was that Elizabeth was pregnant. The court decided to force Swan to pay child support, but leveled no other punishment against him, which obviously upset the community around him. Thanks to his reputation as a rapist and abuser, Timothy Swan never married. He never even made friends. He just lived alone with his brother, seething with bitterness about the way he had been treated and feeling unwelcome everywhere he went. And rightly so, because the people of Andover hated him. So when the girls from Salem got to work, Timothy Swan and Samuel Wardwell were both likely suspects. They were both outsiders, and both had reputations that placed them outside the norms of the Puritan society. But there was one problem. 
Swan was deathly ill when they arrived, and he was pointing the finger at someone else, someone he believed who had bewitched him with crippling sickness. Anne Foster. With a lead to follow up on, the witchfinders got to work digging into the stories and accusations. But as they did, they encountered a problem. The pit was much deeper and far more dark than they ever could have imagined. I realize that I've thrown a lot of names at you, and it's easy to get confused. Trust me, I'm right there with you, although I thankfully have hundreds of pages of research outlines and notes to lean on. Still, I want to take a moment to point out that the Unobscured website has a resources page that will continue to grow over the next couple of months. You can find that over at historyunobscured.com resources. There are a lot of fantastic books listed there that you can use to look up names and keep all of the families straight. The Salem Witch Trials is a complex network of families and neighbors, and there's nothing I can do through audio to completely simplify that mess, but I'll do my best. The Fosters were another of those old Andover families. Anne's husband had been one of the earliest to arrive in the area, right alongside the Ballard's patriarch. But after he passed away in 1685, trouble started calling at the Foster family door. And for a widow in her 70s who was too frail to even walk around town anymore, it was a bit overwhelming. First, there was the murder. Four years earlier, one of Anne's daughters, Hannah, was murdered by her husband, Hugh Stone. And on the scale of bad to worse, this crime was horrid. Anne's daughter had been pregnant at the time with what would have been their eighth child, and Hugh didn't commit the crime in private. No, he killed her in cold blood right in the middle of town. It was a horrifyingly tragic moment in Andover's young history and went on the record books as the first murder in their community. Anne's son-in-law hanged for the crime, but from the gallows he had shouted out that it was all the fault of the Foster family. His wife had been contentious, and because of that, it was her fault that he had murdered her. Exactly a century before William Murdoch became the first person to use flammable gas as a lighting source, and 250 years before the film that established the concept, Hugh Stone was gaslighting his victims from the gallows. Some things never change, I guess. The murder wasn't the end for Anne Foster's problems, though. Her teenage granddaughter, Mary Lacey Jr., ran away from home for a time, and that seemed to echo Hugh Stone's claims from his execution day that the family was wild and unruly through and through. So when Timothy Swan, known rapist and unwelcome outsider, pointed his finger at her and claimed she was a witch, those rumors had enough weight to make him believable. Anne Foster was carried before the magistrates in Salem. Literally. She wasn't strong enough to walk, so they carted her to town and carried her inside the meeting house. It was only an examination, not an official trial, but there was very little to separate them in the minds of the community as of late. It was the beginning of a journey that could not end well for the 75-year-old Andover widow. The Ray of Hope was the newcomer to the team of magistrates. Taking the place of Nathaniel Saltonstall was John Higginson Jr., the respected son of the Salem town minister. In fact, John's father, John Sr., had been one of the biggest advocates for the more liberal halfway covenant years before, and almost gave up his job for it. 
Reverend Higginson in Salem Town nearly left. He was willing to leave Salem if they didn't loosen up those rules and adopt the halfway covenant. By the way, as had people like Bartholomew Gedney and John Haythorne were two of the first members to come in under Higginson's loosened rules in Salem Town. He had the potential to be the voice of common sense over piety. Added to that, just the month before, John's own sister had been arrested on suspicion of witchcraft and was sitting inside a filthy jail awaiting a trial of her own. He had more than enough reason to approach this new examination with caution and logic. Ann Foster ruined all of that, though, when she did the unthinkable. She confessed to being a witch. She told the magistrates that the devil had appeared to her in the shape of a colorful bird, something that echoed the imagery used by the Paris slave, Tichuba. The devil had offered her prosperity and instructed her to harm people as part of the deal. One of the witches who came with the devil to recruit her was none other than Martha Carrier. As I've mentioned before, she was the first Andover resident to be accused and thrown in jail. But for six long years, Martha Carrier had been training her, teaching her to make puppets and how to squeeze them and stick them with pins to inflict pain on others. Over the course of three days of examination, Ann Foster unloaded a treasure trove of confessions. They held witch meetings with hundreds of their kind and flew from all over on wooden sticks. Martha Carrier was there, as was the minister George Burroughs, leading the evil congregation, which earned them the nicknames the King and Queen of Hell. Here's Stacy Schiff, historian and author of The Witches. That's an expression of Cotton Mather's. I think he kind of makes that up, to be honest with you. I don't think there's a king and queen of hell. I don't know. I, th- I think that was just, you know, Mather trying to make the whole thing a little bit more dramatic. He really goes to great lengths to paint Martha Carrier in the most wretched terms. And Cotton Mather would have been at the trials, and he bases his portraits there loosely on the testimony. If you look at it, you see he's taken some liberties with the testimony. He's left out a great number of things. He's left out things that were to people's credit. He's injected things that weren't actually in the testimony. And my sense is that for whatever reason, Martha Carrier rubbed him the wrong way, and, and that's why she gets promoted to Queen of Hell. I also want to point out something intriguing. Ann Foster, through her stories, actually painted herself in the stereotypical image of a witch that most modern people have in their heads today an old, decrepit woman riding through the night sky on a wooden broom handle. In the midst of all of this, Mercy Lewis and Elizabeth Hubbard reached the conclusion of their own witch-finding investigation back in Andover. Despite the clear suspects that Samuel Wardwell and Timothy Swan presented, the two women seemed to follow the excitement out of Andover and back home. In their minds, the witches responsible for Elizabeth Ballard's illness were obvious— Anne Foster, her daughter Mary Lacey Sr., and her granddaughter, Mary Jr. With actual names from official witchfinders, Joseph Ballard had a case and a chance to save his dying wife. He traveled to Salem on July 19th and filed his complaint, the same day, by the way, that Rebecca Nurse and the others were carted out to the execution site and hanged. It's interesting to note that Joseph Ballard's legal complaint represents the first time in the entire months-long event that anyone actually paid the bond that was supposed to accompany such serious charges. Maybe it was because he was from out of town, 
or perhaps having John Higginson on the court, brought a refreshed view of proper procedures. All we know is that he paid the 100-pound fee. On July 23rd, an Andover constable, although not Joseph Ballard, arrested Mary Lacey Sr. and Mary Lacey Jr. and brought them to Salem. Another person searched their home for proof of witchcraft, but all they managed to find was a bundle of sticks and some yarn, nothing that would scream diabolical plots and devil worship. Much like a number of the previous cases, Mary Lacey Sr. was questioned thoroughly before she ever stepped foot into her formal examination later that day. Records of the conversation no longer exist, if they were ever written down at all. But we do know that she confessed, and the details she revealed were swallowed whole by the magistrates. I want to point out that we also have a new type of person here. In the beginning, we just had the afflicted. Those were the people who appeared to be victims of attacks by the witch, and the afflicted had driven much of the proceedings for months. Then there's the accused. I think that one makes more sense, right? These are the people who the afflicted pointed at and declared to be a witch. The accused had been rounded up through scores of warrants, examined in front of the magistrates prior to a trial, and then housed in one of a handful of jails around the area until their day in court would arrive. But the confessors, these were new. Sure, there were a few random cases earlier. Accused women who spoke freely about their interactions with the devil and his book, and the Red Communion and witches' gatherings. But it always came in small pieces, requiring the magistrates to put it all together over time. The confessions, though, were different. Looking back, it's easy to wonder why anyone would do something like that. Here's Mary Beth Norton, professor of American history at Cornell University and author of In the Devil's Snare. The, the question of why people confessed has always been something that people have been wondering about. But when it became clear, as it became clear later in the trials, that if you confessed, you would be kept alive so you could testify against other people, is when more and more people started to confess. And one of the things I noticed was that when adults confessed late in the sequence of the trials, they accused only people who were already dead, who'd already been hanged, or they accused people who'd been accused by other people. They did not name new people. It seemed clear to me that it was very strategic when they confessed. They did not want to hurt anyone who wasn't already hanged or already had been accused of others. These were people who stood before the authorities, and when they were asked if they were a witch, they answered yes. And then they detailed every single moment of their diabolical lifestyle, step by step. They exposed themselves as the enemy, and oftentimes pulled their own family into the fire with them. Mary Lacey Sr. was one of those people. She freely confessed on July 21st, giving the magistrates powerful tools to use on her mother and her daughter. When they brought Ann Foster back into the examination room and told her that her daughter had confessed, Anne didn't freak out and deny it. She seems to have accepted it as fact and then added her own details to the story. Then they brought Mary Lacey Sr. back in to see Anne right in front of the magistrates. When Mary saw her, she cried out, Oh, mother, we have left Christ. 
and the devil hath got hold of us. How shall I get rid of this evil one? When their moment was over, both of the women were escorted back out of the room, and young Mary Lacey Jr. was brought in alone. At first, she denied everything, even when one of the afflicted girls started convulsing in fits on the floor. But when the judges told her that her mother and grandmother had already confessed, she crumbled. She told them that she had seen a horse just a week before, and now wondered if that horse had been the devil in disguise. The magistrates told her that her only chance to obtain mercy and be saved by Christ was to freely and openly confess. And with that ultimatum hanging over her head, she gave in, adding even more details to the stories told by her mother and grandmother. All three of the women did something unusual, too. You would expect them to name the less savory people in their community as witches, but instead they pointed their fingers at family. Here's Mary Beth Norton once again. It's very interesting. It's a completely different pattern in Andover than you get in Salem Village. Salem Village, people accuse their enemies. In Andover, people accuse their friends and their relatives. There's this one family where five sisters and the mother all confess and basically accuse each other and say they're all working together. So it's a very different pattern. It was easy to believe them, though. When questioned individually, they each told stories about the same event, and many of the details seemed to line up. It was as if the things they described were real. I asked Stacy Schiff, author of The Witches, why she thought that was the case. The answer to your question really is when you, when you get toward Andover, Salem witchcraft ultimately will, will migrate to Andover. And by that time, all the imagery has really changed. It's less about the enchanted hay and the satanic cat, and it's more about this diabolical meeting to which people have flown from all over New England. And there, most of the testimony is utterly on point. It's extremely it's as if everyone compared notes while in prison. Everyone, has, everyone talks about precisely the same sound to call the people to the field. They talk about the same person presiding over this dark Sabbath. They mention the same guest list of who was there. Every detail corroborates each detail. And that's obviously because they're being told either by their friends in prison or their family who think they're guilty or the ministers in charge what to say. Looking back, it's easy to see countless examples of the authorities leading the witness. They suggest answers with their questions and give the accused just enough detail to reply with answers that fit their expectations. Maybe these men were just really bad at interviewing the accused, or perhaps they allow their bias to steer the ship. We might never know. But something else came out of the examination of Ann Foster and her family. New names from Andover. Mary Lacey Sr. mentioned two of Martha Carrier's own children as one of their own, sending the court into a frenzy. The following day, 18-year-old Richard and 16-year-old Andrew were arrested and brought to town. What awaited them, however, was not the usual examination we have come to expect. Their fate would be much more painful than anyone thus far. Torture The Carrier Boys were brought to a tavern in Salem Town, owned by Thomas Beadle. The Andover constable who delivered the warrant and brought them there was none other than Joseph Ballard. There were magistrates waiting for the boys when they arrived. The authorities asked Richard and Andrew a whole slew of questions, but they refused to answer. Maybe it was because they weren't alone in the tavern. 
Seated around them were some of the afflicted girls, along with Mary Lacey Sr. and Jr. Those two women would eventually cry out that the spirit of Martha Carrier and the devil himself were standing among them, preventing the boys from answering. It can't have been a pleasant experience. So they refused to talk. In response, the magistrates had the boys removed from the main room and taken elsewhere in the tavern, where the questions picked up speed and urgency. Still, they remained silent. And that's when the authorities moved on to a new method of extracting information. The English called it neck and heels, and it was an old military punishment. A person would have one board strapped across the backs of their knees, and another across the back of the neck. Then a rope was looped around both boards, one on each side, and slowly tightened. The result was that as the boards were pulled closer and closer together, the person would be bent forward, essentially folding in half. It was cruel and painful, too. There are stories of victims bleeding from their mouth, ears, and nose as the pressure inside their body built up. Some people actually died from the technique. And here we have military-level torture being used on two teenage boys simply because they refused to answer questions. It worked, too. Both young men agreed to tell the magistrates everything they wanted to hear. They began to reveal details that would have sounded very familiar to anyone familiar with the accusation so far. The dark man in a black hat. The devil's book of names. Even the gathering of local witches outside Reverend Paris's house. Richard actually named names. He named his mother Martha, who had been in jail for months as well as his uncle Roger Toothaker, although he had passed away in jail weeks before. He listed Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Howe, and Bridget Bishop, all of whom had been executed already. He also named others who were still alive and awaiting their trial from within a hot, dirty jail cell. Escaped Constable John Willard, John and Elizabeth Proctor, Giles and Martha Corey, and Mary Bradbury. When word about his confession reached their ears, they were enraged. They had been doing all they could to deny the accusations, and now Richard had spoiled everything by contradicting them. John Proctor wrote a note to the local ministers, including Cotton Mather and Samuel Willard, begging for more objective trials, and he asked the ministers to take his request to Governor Phipps himself. The trouble was, Phipps was no longer in Massachusetts. No, he had gone on a sort of victory tour to the places where he had seen the most success. Despite the fact that the very foundation of their government was under assault, Phipps had chosen to abandon his sworn duties and head north to Maine to watch his troops defend the land from invaders by building new fortifications, walls, and structures designed to keep the devil out. William Stoughton was next in command, but he already sat on the court of Oyer and Terminer making it a lost cause. Richard Carrier's confession was accepted as evidence, and when it was, it was as if gasoline had been thrown on the fire. A week later, Joseph Ballard's sick wife, Elizabeth, passed away. Three days later, on July 30th, Martha Carrier's sister, Mary Toothaker, from the town of Belrica, was arrested and questioned. Her husband, Roger, had already died in jail awaiting his trial, and I can't help but wonder if she worried about the same fate for herself. And then, on August 1st, with the entire community of Salem petrified that the devil was winning, 
that he was driving deeper into their safe territory. A Native American raid struck a bit too close to home. Here's Mary Beth Norton once again. Bill Rick is only 20 miles away. Now, that was the closest attack that I know of to Salem. But remember, all these people had relatives in Maine and New Hampshire, and the people in Maine and New Hampshire were constantly under threat, even in the most southern parts of Maine and New Hampshire, in um, what's now Portsmouth, which was then called Strawberry Bank, what was uh, Wells, Maine. There were attacks nearby all the time. The people felt under constant threat, shall we say. So the attack in Billerica was the closest, but eventually later in the war, actually after 1692, there was a big attack on Andover. So it's not as though the war wasn't right there. Ironically, Mary Tuthaker's arrest saved her life. When the Wabanaki raided Belrica, they killed every single resident of the homes on either side of Mary's. Had she not been in jail, she would have died in the attack. But of course, that didn't mean her life was any safer just because she dodged that bullet. There were plenty more rounds in the chamber, and they were all aimed at her. The man who would do the metaphorical shooting was the newly appointed attorney general for the trial. Sir Thomas Newton, if you remember, had resigned after convicting Rebecca Nurse and the others. Taking his place was a newcomer, Anthony Checkley, and he was ready to get to work. The third Oyer and Terminer session would begin two days later, on August 3rd, and it was the event everyone had been waiting for. Because they were about to witness something completely unheard of the witchcraft trial of an actual minister of God. Like a lot of the pieces of the Salem witch trials, we're not exactly sure when some of the trials happened. What we know is that the third official session of the Oyer and Terminer was called to order on August 2nd of 1692 and ran through the end of August 5th. We even know what days certain cases were heard, but we're not sure about others. The Proctors are one of those mysteries. They remind me a lot of Rebecca Nurse. While most of the accused were outsiders or people with very few friends and family to lean on, the Proctors were a well-connected family. They ran that busy tavern on the northern edge of the village, and that had a way of putting them into a lot of people's lives. So when their trial date arrived, they brought two separate petitions with them. One of them included the names and signatures of 19 neighbors and friends, including George Locker, the constable who had been responsible for arresting Sarah Good all the way back on March 1st. I can't help but wonder if Locker's work with the trial had begun to soften his heart. The second was most likely started by Ipswich Minister John Wise and included 31 other names on that list. And Wise, being a trained minister, used the petition to also make an important theological point. He referenced the Old Testament story of the Witch of Endor and how Satan had once counterfeited a specter of the holy prophet Samuel. In other words, just because people have claimed to see John Proctor's specter doesn't mean it actually was John Proctor. But it didn't work. As we've been discussing for a number of episodes, Salem wasn't inside a safe little bubble. It was a community on the edge of a great dark wilderness, where the agents of the devil were prowling through the shadows looking for a way to tear them down. One minister, speaking out with common sense, was not about to alter their perception of the world, as sad as that sounds. Sometimes a crowd lets their fears propel them down terrifying roads. 
Sometimes their leaders encourage it. After the Proctor's case was heard, it was time for the Queen of Hell herself, Martha Carrier. We don't have the official court records for her trial, but Cotton Mather was there, and he wrote down all his observations of the day. His simple words, it followed the standard pattern, are all we really need to know. Thomas Putnam was said to have sworn an oath that, had the judges not required Martha to be bound by rope, she might have broken loose and killed them all. And he had good reason to be afraid, because the rumors were powerful. Curses and illness and death were on every whisper. Some of her neighbors in Andover had gone on record to claim that Martha had often cursed them after disagreements. Once, several of Benjamin Abbott's cows mysteriously died, and later his foot became infected and needed treatment from a doctor. Two other neighbors, John Rogers and Samuel Preston, both claimed that Martha had killed some of their livestock after an argument. Even family got involved in her trial. Alan Toothaker was her nephew, and also the son of Mary and Roger. With his father dead and his mother awaiting her turn in court, maybe Alan saw darkness closing in around him and wanted a way out. So he joined the accusers and blamed the death of his own cattle on his aunt. Other victims were brought to trial that week as well. George Jacobs and John Willard both stood before the magistrates to make their case and have evidence against them be presented. If you don't remember, John Willard was the 30-year-old outsider who had married into the Wilkins family, but had fled the area when accusations had been hurled against him. To make matters worse, young Daniel Wilkins had mysteriously died, and everyone seemed to suspect Willard had bewitched him to death. John had been an abusive husband, too, giving his reputation just enough of a tarnish that it was easy for most people to consider him a witch. His trial was over in just a few hours, and he was taken back to jail to await the verdict. George Jacobs was a rough-spoken, illiterate farmer with a wild sense of humor, but none of that was going to help him before the magistrates. Some of the original afflicted girls, including Annie Putnam and Elizabeth Hubbard, came forward to swear that Jacob's spirit was tormenting them. Even there, during the trial, they could see it flying about, trying to attack them and disrupt the proceedings. Jacob's own granddaughter, Margaret, had previously been accused by others and saved herself by confessing and pledging to help name other witches. Here, at her grandfather's trial, she made good on that promise, pointing a finger at him and adding her voice to the accusations. Poor George Jacobs didn't stand a chance. These were all difficult cases to watch, I'm sure. Prominent, respected people who were being dragged before the court and accused of witchcraft. And despite the ridiculousness of it all to us today, the evidence presented was damning for each and every one of them. But that's not why most of the people in the courtroom had traveled from so far and wide. They weren't there to see widowed farmers and tavern owners raked over the coals of justice. No, they had come to see a bigger trial, one with more weight and importance. The trial of the rumored leader of those lesser witches. The king of hell himself, George Burroughs. There was something undeniably extraordinary about George Burroughs. Here is Stacy Schiff once again. It's conjectural, but I, I think it's something a little bit different. I think with Burroughs, Burroughs goes to Maine and 
protects his parishioners in a very small community against a hideous and very savage Indian assault. And he's forced to do that because the Massachusetts authorities have essentially stopped protecting those communities because they don't have the funds to do it and they're trying to cut back. And I feel as if there might have been a piece of residual guilt there for having left those communities unprotected. Burroughs would have had every reason to chastise them for kind of cutting off those settlers who were really at the very forefront of the, really at the edge of the frontier there and are getting no protection. And he'll write the one document we have of his, which is really extraordinary, is an account of an Indian raid on the community where he's protecting his parishioners inside a barricade. And, you know, he writes of it in biblical terms. It's an astonishing document in which he proves to be a very courageous and ingenious man. But if Burroughs was painting himself in a biblical light, and perhaps adding in embellishments about his prowess and cunning, those traits might have backfired. I mean, the other interesting thing about Burroughs is that he's very strong and he's very canny. And a lot of the testimony against him will be testimony about his somehow magical strength. How did he lift that barrel? How did he fire that very long musket? How was it possible that he heard that conversation from that distance? How did he get to be two places at once? Not everything about Burroughs was a rumor about his strength or brilliance. There were some who viewed parts of his life, or at least the rumors about them, as less than savory. To them, that nickname of King of Hell made a lot of sense. Here's Mary Beth Norton. Burroughs is the right person to be the leader of the witches because he's a minister and because he's a kind of a weird minister. That is, he's never been ordained. He's been educated at Harvard. And because there's all kinds of gossip about him, which I explore in my book, he has a very peculiar relationship with his wives. It's hard to know a lot about the details, but he seems to have been quite brutal and quite an aggressive husband. He at least is accused of beating them, or at least being very controlling of them. He wants them to, quote, keep his secrets. And so the question becomes, what are those secrets he wants them to keep? So when Burroughs began his trial on August 5th, the courtroom was packed. Even ministers from up and down the coast had made the journey to see one of their peers stand trial. Maybe they were there to silently root for one of their own. Or perhaps they were nervous about their own safety and saw Burroughs' trial as a canary in the mine for their own future. Burroughs' supernatural strength was a topic of discussion, as was his unnatural cunning. Never mind the fact that both of those characteristics had been exaggerated in descriptions of the Native American raid on his community in Maine. And he used that cunning in the courtroom, too. His life was on the line, after all. I'm not sure any of us would have done it any other way. He knew the court system better than almost all of the accused. He knew the rules and procedure. He knew what his rights were and what the magistrates had to accommodate. For example, he began his defense by exercising his right to challenge the prospective jurors. After discussing each of them, he requested that a few of them be replaced. It was smart and logical. He was trying to bring order to the chaotic trial that was sweeping innocent people along in the flood. But from the outside looking in, it also looked like trickery. No one else played the system so well. So naturally, people assumed that this was the sort of thing you might expect from the reputed wizard known as the King of Hell. There were witnesses with stories about him tormenting them. Stories about him leading the coven of witches in their plot to destroy the Puritan experiment. Even courtroom theatrics, as some of the afflicted fell into trances and seizures at the sight of him 
It was all what you might expect at this point, and yet all somehow worse. Burroughs put up a mighty fight, but in the end, even he failed to beat the magistrates at their game. Even the ministers who had gathered there for the trial walked away believing in his guilt. The great and respected Increase Mather later wrote that, Had I been one of the judges, I could not have acquitted him. Burroughs, along with Martha Carrier, George Jacobs, John Willard, and John and Elizabeth Proctor, were all convicted on charges of witchcraft. Each of them was sentenced to death by hanging, and the date of their execution was set and announced. Despite their best efforts to save themselves, their time had run out. On August 4th, the people of Salem received terrifying news. An earthquake had rumbled off the coast of Jamaica and sent a tsunami crashing over the island. It had happened on the 7th of June, two months earlier. But of course, news traveled very slowly in the pre-internet era. The city of Kingston had been destroyed, and over 1,700 people had been killed. And in the Puritan worldview where nothing happened by chance, the people of Salem were quick to assign meaning to the tragedy. Dark meaning. They had just mounted an attack on the king and queen of hell. They had fired a shot straight into the heart of the witchcraft problem in their community, and that was a direct attack on the devil himself. What if the tragedy in Kingston was a retaliation for their own advancement forward? It didn't help that just days before news of the tsunami, Cotton Mather had preached from the book of Revelation. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, he had read from chapter 12, verse 12. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. I can't help but wonder if the upcoming executions were viewed with equal parts uneasiness and relief. It was their chance to strike back again. For those who had been convicted, though, it must have been torture to wait for it. But not everyone had the same fears and dread. While all of them had been convicted and sentenced to death, Elizabeth Proctor had a different path ahead of her. You see, she was pregnant. Here's Mary Beth Norton once again. Pregnancy was an excuse in England. It was in English law. It was called pleading your belly. When a woman was convicted of a capital offense, she could, as they said, plead her belly. And if she was pregnant, if the midwives confirmed that she was pregnant, then she wasn't hanged until after she gave birth. So Elizabeth Proctor had to wait. I can't imagine the darkness they must have felt, John and Elizabeth, knowing that he was about to die and she was only kept alive by the child inside her. A child she would never get to hold and love and see grow up. Her own life was simply borrowing time until a new life arrived to take its place. On August 19th, the crowds returned to see the job completed. All of those ministers and all of those curious onlookers gathered to watch as John Proctor, George Jacobs, Martha Carrier, John Willard, and George Burroughs arrived at the site of their execution in the back of a cart. Eyewitnesses claim that some of them spoke up for themselves. John Willard and John Proctor are both said to have forgiven their accusers and prayed for forgiveness for whatever wrongs they themselves might have committed. But when it was George Burroughs' turn, he broke that peaceful mood. 
He used his final moments to declare his innocence one last time. And then, with a crowd gathered around to listen, he began to recite the Lord's Prayer. Here's Stacy Schiff once again. It was understood that a witch could not recite the Lord's Prayer. Burroughs on the Gallows is apparently a tremendously um, moving and, and troubling sight because he is, in fact, a man of great presence and he clearly knows how to speak and he's delivered sermons that many of these people have heard. And here he is in that same, it sounds, deep voice reciting the Lord's Prayer. So here he is doing something that a witch was understood, which would be proof, in fact, that you were not a witch. And the crowd apparently at that moment has a moment of doubt and begins to surge toward him as if to somehow bring the proceeding to an end, bring the hanging to an end. And they're pushed back by the authorities, which does indicate that it's the upper echelon, really, that has that's holding the, the animus for, for Burroughs in some way. Burroughs had declared his innocence. He had worked within the court system using their own rules and procedures against them. He had explained his actions clearly and defended himself against his accusers with cunning. He even stood before the crowd on his execution day and recited the Lord's Prayer perfectly. And yet none of it helped. Burroughs, along with all the others standing around him that mid-July morning, hanged for the crimes the court said they'd committed. For the people of Salem... The message was clear. The chaos of the witchcraft trials that swirled around them was a tempest that had no care for the nuances between truth and lies. It was a storm fueled by fear and panic and religious conviction. And its indiscriminate path of destruction so far had only taught them one key truth. Any one of them could be next. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Next time on Unobscured. Historians today have no idea where Daniel Andrew and George Jacobs Jr. found shelter, but their stories tell us something important about the culture they lived in and how similar it is to our own world today. That when it comes to the machinations of power, who you know is often more important than what you know. That money and status, those elusive tools of the elite, are useful in avoiding the power of the law. And that ultimately, while some people's connections might save them, the vast majority faced a less hopeful truth. Who you know could get you killed. Unobscured was created and written by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick and Alex Williams in partnership with How Stuff Works, with research by Carl Nellis and original music by Chad Lawson. 
Learn more about our contributing historians, further reading material, a resource archive, and links to our other shows at historyunobscured.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.